Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well. And our annual Christmas shows, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, not taking place as usual in a run of a week or two weeks of live shows like we do every December. But this year we are doing a one-off 24-hour show on December 12th. As always, all the profits will go to charity, so you can go to crowdfund.co.uk slash nine lessons and donate there, and there's rewards and stuff for doing so as well. And you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to get some tickets to come along and see it live. There's going to be a small number of socially distanced tickets available to watch certain blocks of the 24 hours live and that's also where we'll be posting any news and uh, guest lineups and all that sort of stuff already confirmed to appear uh robin is hosting for the entire 24 hours and there'll be helen chesky and beck hill and josie long and chris hadfield and brian cox and helen sharman and sharon d clark and mark watson and tanita tickram and sophie ellis bexter and jim al and chris jackson and loads 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 more so go to cosmicchannels.com slash nine lessons to check that out and now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to our traditional Sunday Science Q&A. And uh, today we're going to be discussing the night sky. We have Dr. Sheila Kanani and Dr. Stuart Clark. And we have, it's her birthday today. And so I wish for a happy birthday i have cake but i don't think she does which seems most unfair um but we are i'm, I'm very excited about doing today so i always enjoy doing these shows and i hope that you continue to enjoy watch them we've been doing them uh throughout oh no they've used they've used virtual helium balloons which of course still does in some way use some form of helium so uh you are going to be so annoyed about that, Helen. Um, the, uh, uh, but thanks very much for joining us. And uh, I'll just tell you a few things that we've got going on at the moment. Thank you very much, everyone who supports us for our Patreon. Um, yet again, of course, we've hit another point where it's going to be uh, increasingly difficult to work out whenever I'm going to be back doing live shows as some people have know you know we did a, a series of live shows uh, daily live shows at the beginning of lockdown and we made sure that all that money actually went to uh, performers and, and arts venues um now we really do need to get the kind of patreon and as much support as possible if you are able to support us that is um absolutely fantastic and we are doing more patreon exclusive stuff as well now um including a new series called an uncanny hour the first episode went out midnight and halloween all about the horror classic dead of night with uh, reese shearsmith jeremy dyson andy nyman 
Joanna Neary and Sarah Morgan. And we're very soon doing one about Hawkwind in the 1970s, which I know at least one of our guests I reckon will listen to. And uh, that we had Stuart Lee and Alan Moore. And we have Stacia Blake and Jane Weaver on that. And uh, that's a lot of fun. And that'll be out soon. I'm also, by the way, doing something in the traditions. If you've been watching recently, you'll know that Helen very often finds various different things with tropical fruits or, or vegetables. I today, my experiment is uh, when your mic no longer, uh, they actually just keep swinging down. I don't know if you can see. Can you see that I've actually um, got uh, an avocado is being used today to balance my microphone. I don't know if you can see that. So that my experiment is one of, of extreme pragmatism. I've currently found this unripe avocado is the correct thing to repair uh, microphone difficulties that I have. Um, uh, also, a new episode of Science Book Shambles is out with Camilla Pang, which is uh, it was a really enjoyable conversation. She's got a new book out um, and she talks her first book and she talks about how when she was diagnosed as being uh, on the autistic uh, spectrum, uh, how she used already her excitement as a child in, in terms of science, how she used that to not merely understand her herself but also to understand other human beings it's a really interesting book about both adhd and also being uh dealing with being on the autistic spectrum and the diagnosis so that's out on science shambles at the moment and uh if you've got if you want to ask questions by the way just go to our live chat uh we take live questions questions um and uh, trent will make sure that i see those questions and uh, or you can tweet us at uh, cosmic shambles as well and uh, trent by the way just to tell you i haven't got my phone with me so pop them up in the uh, in the question section in the in the chat box at the side of this if you are able to um and uh next week it's part two of our mental health and the pandemic uh conversation we have Dean Burnett and Nav Kapoor um, returning for that. As you will know, last time we just had so many questions and we couldn't deal with them all. And so we're going to try and do it. If you still have new questions, we will try, you know, do send in questions about that. And I realised that for a lot of people with uh, all of these different uncertainties and this in incredible, almost gr grotesque ineptitude that we we're currently watching with the, the, this government, uh, I can see that that is part of the story at the moment that we're seeing in terms of people finding it very, very difficult and, and increasingly anxiety inducing all of those messages that are coming across so if you have anything you'd like to ask about that please uh do, if you by the way if that in any way that's party political you should know i'm extremely partisan uh, i'm a big fan of evidence-based thinking and i feel that in many ways this is not the government that will be delivering evidence-based thinking based just around their enormously long track record um also nine lessons is still going to be going ahead um even though we are now in a different kind of uncertain position about how we're going to be doing our nine lessons 24-hour show between the 12th of december and the 13th of december um we will it's definitely going to be happening whatever happens we will find trent in particular and melinda who do amazing work are currently working to make sure that that will still be with with all the different guests we've got our astronaut guests and uh well we've got an incredible i think we've got 109 guests so far for the 24 hours um including chris hadfield and helen charman and sophie ellis bexter and many many more and justin bell Burnell, who's always fantastic to talk to as well and such an, an interesting human being um so that's still going to be going ahead. Here is the show. Also, but oh, you can find out, by the way, about our show. If you go to crowdfunder.co.uk slash nine lessons. So, Helen Chersky, it's your birthday. What is your birthday show and tell? Um, one of my birthday presents, but it's something. I'm, it's, I, normally, I try and find a show and tell that's related to the theme. This is not nothing to do with the night sky, but I'm not going to apologise for that. It's um, a book that I've been looking for for a while, and my mum found it for my birthday. And it's this. It's called Floating Gold. Um, 
a history of uh, ambergris. And we discussed ambergris a little bit last week. It's the stuff that comes out of Wales. But what I wanted to share with you was, so now, so I've only read a little bit of it this morning, but I wanted to share with you some of the things that I've learned already because ambergris is surprisingly hard to find stuff out about. And the first, so um, for those of you who may have missed last week's show, ambergris is this waxy substance. It washes up on beaches. It is fantastically expensive. Humans and sultans and kings and perfume makers value this stuff so much. It comes out of a whale's bottom. So there is a quote at the start of this by her, from Herman Melville in Moby Dick. And it says, um, who would think then that such fine ladies and gentlemen should regale themselves with an essence found in the inglorious bowels of a sick whale? Yet so it is. And um, I, so I just want to, to tell you how what ambergris is, because there is a wonderful description in here. It's very quick. Um, so basically... Uh, sperm whales, they are the ones that produce sperm whales are the largest of the toothed whales. They eat squid. And that means that they uh, they get loads of squid beaks in their stomachs. And they're a little bit like cows. They've got four stomachs. So if things are going well, the squid beaks, this, the whale eats the squid. The squid beaks all accumulate in the first stomach. And after a while, the whale vomits them out. And this is what should happen. But sometimes this goes wrong. And then the whale beaks, a little cluster of them, carry on down to the fourth stomach. And there they hang around. And there they cause problems. And waxy substances build upon them. And they start to bung things up. And the poo basically has to make its way around the lump of uh, broken squid beaks and other things. And the, the lump gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, the poo keeps going around and it stays there. And it, this is a problem. And it, eventually one of two things happens. Either it bungs up the digestive tract and the whale dies, uh, bursts open and the ambergris gets released, or the whale manages to get this thing down to the far end of its digestive tract and poos it out and then carries on as a happy whale. And this is the stuff that is worth thousands of dollars per like ounce. It's immensely valuable. It floats around in the sea. It gets dealt, you know, sea salt, chemical reactions happen. It's basically, you know, if you gave whales laxatives, they would all be much happier and no one would have any very expensive ambergris. But it washes up on beaches. And I just love, I just, I mean, I haven't got to the rest of the book. I won't share all of it with you. You should all find the book. But um, I just love this idea of this thing that is, um, a very distressed whale basically wanting to get rid of this thing and as soon as it pops out the other end the humans are all over it so yes so that's my rather long-winded show and tell because I just wanted to share some of the wonderful stories in the book see that fascinates me now what I, I presume if we do start giving whales uh, laxative we shouldn't give all the whales laxative on the same day what would be the ramifications <laughs> of, of, of that in there also I like the fact that you know you and I Helen we're not so dissimilar you've been there with a book about science you know annotating it uh, about vomiting I spent yesterday I was doing a show for the wonderful horror movie festival abattoir where I was annotating all the vomiting scenes in Guy N. Smith's book The Sucking Pit a, uh, a fictional uh, <laughs> book about a Terrible, terrible sucking pit and all of the uh, grotesque horrors that arrive there. So we're all annotating basically the same thing, though there yours has some more, scientific integrity. There is one more grotesque horror that I'm going to share with you since you started on the horror story thing. And it was a bloke who was so desperate. to. He went out searching for ambergris. He, he found a whale that had been killed and flayed and put back in the ocean. So its outsides had been taken off. So he climbed down the whale's mouth into its stomachs to go looking for ambergris. And he found the biggest lump of ambergris anyone had ever seen. 
but there's this description of him like crawling in literally like Jonah into the belly of the whale so desperate to fight I mean I feel like that's either either that is a cry that's a cry for help to the universe because either you're going to die in the belly of a whale or you're going to become a millionaire and there's nothing in between (laughs) anyway icky possibility that there might be explosions though as well because if it depending on the state of decay i presume there's a possibility of the gas building up and stuff i mean in a way i think you could see that as a positive because i guess the gas would inflate those bits of the whale and so it might make it easier to go exploring in there but yes you wouldn't want to light a match to see if you'd found any um because it might cause some problems so yeah just and the idea of this this stuff being so fantastically valuable also there's a story sorry i know there's other things to talk about apparently a massive um lump of miscellaneous stuff once washed up on the wellington beach and all the locals thought it was a bit weird and then they started hacking bits off because they thought it was ambergris and they all got really excited because they all thought they were going to get rich and it turned out it was a massive lump of lard that had fallen off a boat <laughs> And there's a lesson there in, in getting too excited about easy wins in life. Anyway. Uh, well, Wellington, as we know, we've talked about it before. It's a wonderful place for things washing up there. At their magnificent National Museum of New Zealand there, they, yes. they have the longest uh, squid, longest preserved squid, which is frankly really fighting against its preservation. If you go look at it now, it's it's reached it's a point struggling. of uh, uncertainty in its uh, in its uh, integrity. Sheila, now we've... Uh, now we've I mean, uh, who knows? We've I mean, who knows? We've given you so many options there for this segue in terms of exploding whales and other grotesque images well yeah so my show and tell is more of a show and smell um i obviously sorry you don't have smell o vision so you can't smell it it is pretty disgusting so i keep it inside a jiffy bag um it is don't know if you can see that there it is it's not that disgusting it's a photograph of comet 67p Comets are basically big, dirty snowballs flying about in space, orbiting around the sun past Pluto in the Kuiper Belt. And um, Comet 67P is the famous one that was visited by the Rosetta mission some years ago. Rosetta and Philae. So Philae was a lander that actually landed on the surface of Comet 67P. Now, this postcard is a photograph, um, but it's actually a scratch and sniff postcard. So it reeks. So the Philae lander and the Rosetta mission were able to measure the nucleus or the the main core of the of the snowball for a couple of years and watched how it eroded as it started to sort of um, melt away and measured what what chemicals and chemical compounds were part of the nucleus of Comet 67P. And it did find water, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, but also really smelly objects or smelly chemicals like hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, formaldehyde, methanol, sulfur dioxide, that kind of stuff. So this postcard, as lovely as it looks and incredible the fact that it's a photo of a comet, you know, millions of miles away from the Earth, absolutely reeks and it reeks a bit like a mixture between horrible smelling incense and rotten eggs so I'm sorry you can't smell it I'm sure actually you're not sorry that you can't smell it um but that is my show and smell today for that is of course this is now going to be available as a roll-on deodorant uh, brought out by the Brian Cox range of uh, bathroom products. The uh, the only uh, thing I have now that I, I do have the Odorama card from John Waters' movie Polyester, <laughs> which starred Divine and Tab Hunter, and I've never scratched it because it is it's got got ten different scratch and sniffs on it. Um, now, Stuart, you have written uh, a wonderful, a wonderful book. book. We talked about uh, we've written a lot of, of of wonderful books as well as the the very useful. I was I was rereading your Twenty Questions Universe book. 
book, which is uh, such a, a fantastic book. But your new one about about our relationship to the night sky is such an an intriguing thing about the rediscovery of what we used to understand and what we have believed about the night sky, which is sometimes not nearly as fictional or mythical as we might have um, first imagined, or even when we first looked at the, sometimes the paintings on the, on the wall of Lascaux Cave. Absolutely, Robin. Thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it. And it's just such a great pleasure to be here um, with you um, all today and talking about this. Um, just briefly, Sheila's um, postcard made me laugh, and it took me right back to um, uh, to actually covering the Rosetta um, landing and the Philae landing. And one um, one very um, a senior scientist at the European Space Agency um, in uh, in describing to me what the uh, the sensors had discovered um, strictly off the record said to me, "Do you know what? It smells like my local at closing time on a Friday night." So. <laughs> So, so yeah, I'm truly glad, Sheila, that we didn't get to smell that. Uh, so, so what you... is your show and tell? Now, we've had uh, – it is. It's getting more and more ghastly with each. So I don't know what you're going to drag up now. Yeah, mine is um... – Mine's a lump of iron. It's like the most boring show and tell you've ever seen um, until I tell you um, that it's from a meteorite. Uh, it's an iron meteorite. And what particularly intrigues me about – about this is that this was once you know but 4.6 or so billion years ago maybe uh, uh you know a little later than that um this was once the core of a forming planet in our solar system that was shattered back into pieces um and then somehow uh, just happened to to collide with the Earth, and so it was found on the Earth's surface as a meteorite. And this um, physical connection to the night sky is is something that intrigues me greatly. It sits on my desk, and whenever I need some of that sort of cosmic inspiration and to feel that sense of sort of the, the sort of sublime awe, I, I look at it and I think about its journey through space and time once all of the atoms that were in here were in the heart of a massive star ago which were then sort of exploded out into the uh, into the universe where they formed into clouds and those clouds eventually um, coalesced into what became our solar system but this is part of a planet um, that didn't make it could have been earth sibling um, but now it just sits on my desk and provides me with um, with inspiration You've also got the pun for your next book because your next book will be called Sublime Ore. Look, look at the at iron ores that have changed your view of cosmology. So that's fantastic. It is. I, I do find I, I know we've talked about this before, but all of those different things that give people a sense of connection beyond the space that they are normally in. And I, 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 I mean, I love that. I think the first time I'm trying to remember, I think it was with Monica Grady, the first time that she was on uh, Monkey Cage and she brought, you know, you, you held a, a solid where the density of it was so she, so she would pass you something and say this, you know, from a meteorite. And then you would go, hang on a minute, this isn't right. And finding out that, you know, throughout the universe, there are moments where our body has 
become so adapted to the expectation of you know the weights that we feel and all that and and to to be taken by surprise i think immediately it can create a tremendous moment of transcendence which is is something i know we've talked about this helen finding those moments and not being ashamed of them within science to say that there is no shame in that sense of of those transcendent connections to to the universe and there was one actually at the moment. So I was out walking outside with friends last night and the moon last night, it was a clear night. And it was as it must be very close to full moon. It might be one day either day either side it might be a blue moon I think but it's I find it sometimes uh, the moon really gets me like that that some you can sort of see the cosmic clockwork just you know you just catch it like there's a normal scene and then your brain just flips and so I don't know whether it might not be as clear this evening but if it's clear where you are it's worth going out to to look at that just because when it's really low on the horizon you can you can your mind can just briefly expand to feel the picture just absolutely and if you once you find the moon, then about the same altitude looks in the early evening, looks south, come and to the beautiful bright red jewel of Mars, super bright at the moment, very close. And then keep going further south still, and you'll see two bright spots close together. The dimmer one is Saturn, the brighter one is Jupiter. And they're coming ever closer together at the moment, and they will will, will come very close in December for one of the grand conjunctions, which only happens every 20 years. And just watching these things develop night after night as they slowly creep across the sky and the moon goes through its phases, I, I, I find it one of the most comforting sites that you can possibly look at as you say helen the cosmic clockwork revealed uh, in front of you and it's just there to marvel at i mean sheila this is it feels that this is the right week for us to be doing this subject this return to a lockdown situation and as i said next week of course about mental health but i think it ha- i've certainly found during the first lockdown it was tremendously useful every night I would look up at the sky and, you know, even if you only got a small cat, you know, a, a, a small kind of, you know, space to see it in, because I know that some people in, in inner city stuff, just being able to look up and, yeah. and start to learn maybe what some of the constellations are. Well, you don't, it doesn't even matter if you don't do that. I think it's, a, it, it is tremendously important, especially when you're getting that sense of both kind of sometimes psychological and physical claustrophobia. Yeah, definitely. And we found during the, Definitely. And we found during the first lockdown, we did a lot of online um, sort of lessons and things about astronomy, practical stargazing and encourage people to go outside and just look up. Because even if you live in a flat in, in the in a, in, a, in a city, you can still you know, you're still allowed to go for a walk or whatever um, and look up. You don't need any special technology. And last time we were in the summer skies and now we're in coming into the winter skies. And like you said last night, the, the full moon, the blue moon, it was the second full moon of the month and coinciding with Halloween and all the sort of myths and legends around full moons and werewolves and all of that kind of thing. It really is accessible. And I think that the beauty of space is that anyone can be can be amazed by space. It is accessible to everyone and anyone, no matter where you are, no matter what you've got at your disposal. Uh, at your disposal. And I think the moon is particularly special because there are so many stories related to the moon and everyone is familiar with it. And, you know, we look at the moon and we see faces or animals and we watch how it changes over the, over the, the course of a month and all of that kind of thing. And um, I, I really appreciate space 
um, for mental health as well. I think it, it sort of the two things really link up together, really po potentially surprisingly, but really, really nicely as well. Movie now, things, I would say this is another way, thing. If you do find yourself now with spare time, you weren't expecting, and you want to look at kind of fun, weird conspiracy theories. If you're out there, if you've not seen Alternate Three, uh, which you must have seen, Stuart, I'm sure you've seen Alternate Three from the late seventies. I haven't actually. So oh, this is this, this is an education right? for me. It's so much fun, and it, it it was it was made as an April Fool. Uh, I forget which uh, ITV region made it. The trouble is, I think due to a strike, it didn't go out till May, which meant that already removing the context of it being an April Fool has led to a build-up where this joke has become for some people a reality. Have a look about that. But now, real things about the the moon. Uh, obviously, we've had lots of questions about water on the moon. So Sheila, I, I, I'll start with with you, which is this is from Eight Foot, and Eight Foot would like to know how. Did did water get on the moon? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. I'm not oh, sure. That's a, that's a good one. I'm not sure we know. I'm not sure we, we exactly understand the processes. And even the, the, the water that is present on the moon is in a very unusual format to us. It's kind of trapped in glass beads or glass crystals um, or in the soil already. And there's, there's lots of different theories. But at the moment, I'm not sure we actually know. And it's interesting because obviously we always talk about going back to the moon as human beings and using the moon as a base to other places. And knowing that this water is accessible is, is useful, but it's not maybe it's not the best way of looking at different things in space. You know, why do we immediately think, oh, yeah, we can use that. We can use that to our advantage. But actually, let's just enjoy these facts and be appreciative of what it, what else is out there rather than immediately thinking, oh, we can mine that or we can use that for our own advantage. So, it's, But, yeah, I don't think we actually know exactly how the moon, the, the moon has the, the water on it. Well, yeah, I appreciate that question as well, because she wondered why it's taken us so long to discover that there's water on the moon. But I, I presume that is because it's in this uh, uh, unusual kind of context and, and structure. Yeah, de yeah, definitely. And we, you know, we do look at the moon and we do study the moon and there are various um, satellites and, and moon project, pro, uh, programs and projects. But obviously, we're also looking at other places in our solar system and beyond as well. And there's, um, there's always the fight between where we should, where, where we should go next and where we should spend the money on. And, and you know, it's, it just sort of, some things fall out of favour and other things get very um, exciting. So it just kind of depends on what's trendy at the at the time as well, and and where you're pointing your your satellites or whatever it is. Brilliant. Thank you, uh, both of you. Uh, those, James those Taylor has uh, a question, and this is about asteroids and uh, asteroid strikes. And I should mention, by the way, if you are interested in asteroid strikes, do look up. I mention him a lot on this show, but Rusty Schweikart from uh, Apollo 9, a lot of his kind of post-retirement work has been looking at the potential of asteroid strikes on the Earth. And there are lots of brilliant lectures on YouTube that you can see. All of his lectures are fantastic, actually. He's a very interesting public speaker. Um, but James Taylor, um, Stuart, he wonders, some asteroids get through and burn up in the atmosphere but there are some large ones that don't quite hit us is that luck or does earth's rotation gravity magnetism or some other effect serve to swerve them away from collision it's just luck at
Absolutely, Robin. And um, sometimes those ones that come close to us, um, they can be just gravitationally nudged a little bit by the Earth that, that, that could potentially put them on a collision course with us next time. So asteroid astronomers talk about keyholes, and these are these areas um, that are unique to each asteroid and each close pass. And if they sort of come through this little keyhole, um, then the gravitational influence of the Earth will put them on a collision course next time. So at the moment, um, the only thing that we can do is Earth has no um, n sort of innate defense against small enough if they're large enough they'll get down and hit the ground um, so all we can do at the moment is look for them with survey telescopes and keep cataloging them to smaller and smaller um, sizes so that we can sort of know what's out there and what potentially we may have to deal with in the future can I just ask, by the way, I, I, Chris I think Hadfield's I account the other day, um, which was uh, what looked like a, a, an asteroid strike on Mars that had left kind of three craters. Do you know anything about this or kind of three imprints? Well, sometimes um, you, you can get these sort of get these sort of linear crater chains. We see them on the moon as well. And we think we know exactly how those happen because we saw it happen to Jupiter in the 1990s with the Shoemaker-Levy 9 impact. And the incoming object is, is pulled to pieces by the, the gravity of the, of the planet, say, say Mars in this particular case. So it fragments and then it just hits in the Oh, I just lost the end of that. I don't know if anyone else lost the end. Yes, the, I end, did end, as well. Yeah. End, end oh, can we just hear the, the? Yeah, just just could we? Yeah, just just the just the last bit as you were saying about breaking up into fragments. Yeah, so it breaks up into fragments, which are still following effectively the same trajectory. So they just just hit in a sort of a sequential chain across the the surface. Well, it's fascinating. Such a um, Now, this is one for you, I think, uh, Helen. Uh, this is from Solent Pirate. And uh, Solent Pirate wondered, um, the amount of plastic that comes out of our clothes when we wash them is alarming. What can be done about this? And I just wondered, do you know about yeah, so this is one of those things. This is one of those things that people were sort of aware of, and it suddenly hit the public uh, knowledge, which is a good thing, right? And, and some of these say so like it's, it's kind of scary because everywhere you look, there's another problem. But once you know about it, you can do something about it. So the issue here is that if you have synthetic fabrics, when you wash them, bits fall off, and they're too small to see. You're not losing very much from the point of view of your t-shirt, but obviously they have to go somewhere, and they end up in the ocean in these very small fragments. And um, it does depend. So if you have something that's natural fibers so it's cotton for example then any bits of cotton that carry off will biodegrade right because that's what cotton does whereas if it's um rayon or something so bamboo people think bamboo is a natural fabric but when it's a fabric it isn't it's a cellulose base that's been turned into a plastic so it will not biodegrade so bamboo fabric will also generate microplastics so will anything that's viscous nylon viscose nylon all of those things and basically there are two you can buy some little things that you put in the laundry you know put in the washing machine the shorter version is don't buy plastic clothes as much as you can um so you know it's have one cotton t-shirt rather than having this succession of of nylon t-shirts that you know you don't really need and um and will cause plastic pollution so so yes there are some things that you can put in your um washing machine but the better thing is to have fewer clothes and make them buy them nat as natural fibers as much as you can 
Um, but yeah, so it's it's um, it's a slightly scary problem. But the more you, the, you this is one of those things where little things do everybody take doing a little bit will help. Is is there anything that would surprise us in terms of its plastic content in clothes wise? Things that we might look at the label and we wouldn't realise. So I I suspect rayon and bamboo. So I I see a lot. I have a real bit in my bonnet about the bamboo thing actually, because if you're using bamboo as a structural material for bicycles, it's brilliant. It is absolutely does exactly what it says on the tin. It's a natural material. It's really strong. Make bicycles out of bamboo. Fabulous. But as soon as you use it as a feedstock for fabric, then it becomes a plastic. And rayon is a huge semi-synthetic polymer is a huge proportion of what we find in the ocean. So so. I don't I'm not sure there are any others that are quite that sneaky. And the problem is that people go, oh well, bamboo's natural. Bamboo sounds like a natural thing, so it must be all right. And and it isn't. It's it's like everything else, it's a nat because it came from nature, but you've turned it into something which then isn't going to biodegrade easily. I'm not sure, you know, the other thing, the car tire, particulates from car tires, it's not clothes, but I've I've just made an episode fully charged about this. I've been on about this for a couple of years and and it has been rising up the agenda. But you know, we, we're used to replacing tires, right? You know, tire wears down, so you buy a new tire. And everyone's been taught that. No one said, where did it go? <laughs> right? Where did all that stuff go? And it turns out that the tire particulates that are coming off are very, very small, and a lot of them are ending up in the soils and in the water. Uh, water supplies and in the ocean and so there's and obviously the problem is tire manufacturers are, are incentivized for people to buy more tires that's what they want so so there are there are manufacturers who are trying to effectively have you rent your tires so that they have an incentive to make them last longer so tire particulates is probably the other one that people don't think about so much but again there are solutions you just have to look at the problem and be honest about it and then there are things you can do inflate your tires you want thing number one inflate your tires to the proper pressure for all sorts of reasons energy efficiency and tire particulates are the big two Brilliant. bit of a long way to the stars isn't it sorry about that <laughs> no no, no but, uh, well that's what we always like to have a mix of questions so thank you very much those in. and again just a reminder uh that uh, if you want to support us via patreon just go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and we're currently doing a uh 15 reduction uh if you subscribe for a year we're generally making four to five shows uh a week at the moment we're making loads of stuff and we'll probably be making more actually now we're into a, a new uh lockdown situation so your support is fantastic and we still try and make as much as possible that's free accessible to everyone uh, but it's becoming kind of a, a slightly bigger issue now this has gone on for a little bit longer than uh, uh, we thought or hoped um, now this question from Nigel Nigel would like to know something we've talked about before here and it's always an interesting question I think Sheila I'll start with you on this but is how far away are we from a tipping point for the number of CubeSats and what's not cluttering the sky oh I I don't know exactly in terms don't of know exactly in terms of numbers but this is always a bone of contention in terms of practical astronomy. And um, I know colleagues that sit on panels talking about these sort of me mega constellations that are being put up into the sky and Starlink and all of that kind of thing. Um, and I know also that space agencies are looking into ways of, of cleaning up the, the, the local sky as well and different methods of, of reining in the, the clutter. So that is a real problem. Um, I know in the summer when we had a lovely comet that was visible and I saw loads of incredible photos of these of this comet with these sort of lines across it. And you'd kind of be forgiven for thinking that these images were, you know, taken with really old shoddy cameras. But actually they were these Starlink um, satellites that, that travel in there. I think there's 40 or so now at the moment, but the plan is 
thousands. I can't remember exactly how many. So I think, I think sorry to interrupt you. Actually, yeah. that was one of the photos that won the royal the um, the royal astronomy photography of the yeah. year award, and yeah. it's really dramatic because it's a beautiful thing in the night sky, and it almost looks like the sky is in prison. Yeah, it does. It looks lines like coming up. I really encourage everyone to look for that photograph because it didn't. It, it was shortlisted and it didn't win a prize, but it absolutely stood out so much because it is like we're imprisoning ourselves. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of these near Earth satellites um, we we do need and we do rely on for various types of things, but we, you know we're doing such a bad job of sort of uh, cluttering up the Earth and and then to do it in space as well it's just so sad and it's not just about the actual sort of physical rubbish but it is in terms of astronomy and 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 we're we're blocking science as well so it is something we really need to be wary about definitely and we'll work together about as well um you know rather than trying to prove things over each other and be like oh i can send this many satellites into space but actually if you work with the other people you realize that that's not necessarily a good thing to do and we did have, I think, on um, a science Maybe shambles. a year ago, we had Marek uh, Jebart from uh, UCL, who's a colleague of mine who works on geodesy and satellites. And he he is concerned about the problem that, you know, when one satellite hits another one, that's the problem. Because then that one, then you've got some bits and then the bits hit other things. And, then, and, and he very much feels that the CubeSats make that almost inevitable. Yeah. It's, it's a case of when and not if. Yeah, definitely. That's a really big deal. And I feel I feel no one's really talking about that. And and it, the CubeSats, everyone's like, oh, you know, Elon Musk has put some more things in the sky. And it's like, there's thousands of them. Thousands yeah. and, of you know, them. Tiny little particles can really affect yeah. other satellites. It's not just big lumps of things crashing, into each, crashing into each other. It's sort of dust-sized particles can be just as detrimental as others. Um, yeah, so to give you some context, so since since 1957 and the launch of Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite, um, we've launched about 10,000 satellites into space, of which about half of those are still up there. And in the next 10 years, we're scheduled to launch something like 50,000, most of them these smaller satellite mega constellations. Um, so the, the, the approach that's being taken and right, so so when I say this approach, what I mean is sort of from a purely practical point of view. I've got much, I've got very different views about the aesthetics of the whole thing, and as well. Um, but people are trying to build um, sort of space traffic management systems that can track satellites in orbit and work out how to do the of things. I think the the trouble with all of that is that it's not going to take many accidents for the whole situation to, to run out of control. And that's something called the Kessler syndrome. And the idea, um, Helen, is you're absolutely right. You know, two satellites collide and they produce tens of thousands, if not more, fragments all of which are capable of then destroying a satellite. So, Sheila, you're exactly right that even these tiny, tiny things, you know, a nut of like from a nut and bolt, if that were to hit another satellite at orbital velocities, it's going to impart the same energy as detonating a hand grenade. 
So you just shatter these other satellites. And the, the idea of the Kessler syndrome came up in the 1970s, that you have this runaway chain reaction where you start losing orbits. And that is a real problem um, that the space agencies, I have to say, are looking at and they are trying to tackle. And it's a question of whether the regulation can keep up with um, sort of the, the launches of these huge mega, mega constellations. But Stu, perhaps you can just tell us what is the reg? I mean, you know, so say Elon Musk wants to launch another two thousand cubesats tomorrow. tomorrow. Can anyone stop him? I mean, I know there are rules. The American government, especially, has rules on this. But is 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 enforcement possible? Like, what actually happens when push comes to shove? The difficult area of um, of, of sort of space law, as it were, and problem have with all of this is how you bring it because if you build something that can go and drag a dead satellite out of orbit it can go and drag a live one out of orbit as well so you get into problems of sort of creating space weapons and and and, and sort of contentious issues like that now um there that you have to book your slots as it were for your orbits um and it has been quite confounding that to a lot of people that he seems to have been given permission to launch tens of thousands of other satellites when there hasn't been enough studies and repercussions of all of this. And our regulations about satellites have to sort of come out of orbit in 20 years if they, um, you know, and to try and mitigate against the, the debris up there. And I, my personal feeling is that I don't think those are strong enough and that this is something that is going to just run and run as and we have to have stronger regulation but at the moment there's 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 nothing really that says um that no penalties or anything like that for leaving dead satellites up there and doing nothing about them do you think they should have a clause in that says have the clause in that says if you're going to put a satellite into space once it's died you should be responsible for bringing it back down safely I think we're going in that direction, and that's and that's certainly the, the technologies and things like that. You know, is fine. The other problem that's happened, of course, is in order to try to 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 make that happen, your satellite was still your property, whether it was alive or dead. That actually means that no one can go and take it down, no one can go and remove it. You know, it, it's you're not allowed to effectively, and so that's again one of these other contentious space law issues that we're gradually trying to sort of get our heads around and try to to sort out. But it really does need to be an urgent conversation. That is very very interesting, interesting. and uh, it's a that battle, isn't it, with uh, ingenuity, curiosity, and ego. And uh, sometimes the last of those is the one that is uh, victorious. Um, now, this is I'm glad I don't read the newspapers because I'm worried about the next question because I haven't picked up on this yet. Uh, this is from Rich White. Uh, starting with you, Sheila. Uh, Rich said, so there's not phosphine on Venus now. I wonder if the panel can bring us up to date on what the retraction announcements update last week means. Um, I thought they were two independent observations. So where are we with uh, phosphine with uh, phosphine? That as far as I'm aware, the team that have discovered it have not retracted anything at the moment. There was quite a um, aggressive suggestion that they should retract their their um, their findings immediately. But obviously, they didn't just announce what they found quickly. It's years worth of work that they've built up on, and the suggestion is that maybe it was sort of like a glitch in the in the um, in the system of, of 
you know, how it was detected. And, and, and actually, it's, a, a, you know, it, there isn't phosphine at Venus, but nothing has been proven yet, as far as I can tell. And the, the, the team that have, you know, the, the team that we worked with a few weeks ago to or months ago to do the press release have certainly not retracted anything yet. But of course, they will be looking at their data in more detail and they'll be trying to make more um, uh, more observations of it if it is their kind of thing. Um, but this is the nature of science. And this is kind of the beauty of science as well, that if people get things wrong, they, they should feel comfortable to be able to say, yes, OK, we made a mistake. But, you know, at the time, this is what we thought was real. And hopefully it is real still. Um, and it is still either way. It's quite exciting, you know, that these kinds of um, announcements, I find them you know, whether they do get retracted or not in the future, um, I, I still think that they're they're really valid and really important for, for research and for astronomy. Issues, isn't it, which is culturally, um, certainly I think in, in, in the UK and, and we see it also in, in, in US politics as well, that whole thing about the flip-flopping, the idea to be ashamed is, and, and that is, I, I think there's a lot of scientists I've spoken to who said that's one of the first lessons people need to learn as a scientist that you can come up with something which is based on a lot of very very good evidence but then some other evidence will come in there will be some other questions that come in and it may well change that and that is one of the most important but unfortunately we live in a culture which is much better to be cocksure and continue to be wrong and you know and, and to feel ashamed of of being wrong and i think that is a you know it's a major kind of you know philosophical and psychological battle but there's an extra stage here, which is that there's, there, there are two, there are things, two going things going on. on. One is here is a measurement and here is what the measurement suggests. And that is very straightforward. That's definitely science. Off we go. And then there's the next step, which is to say, well, maybe there's life. And, and my view on this is that if you don't like extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And the problem is that exactly as Sheila said, this is the nature of science, but that should have happened about the measurement. Everyone's yeah. going, here's this measurement, now let's have this debate, publish the paper, we'll all examine the evidence, and that's where the debate shouldn't ha should have happened. But then you make this stage that, oh, there's life, and then it blows up into something it never was. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, NASA does have a, a sort of record in some ways of, like, making announcements. They're going to make an announcement. And, and everyone goes, oh, maybe they found life. And the problem is we're kind of you know, like hooked on this thing of the big thing. And actually, as Sheila said before, maybe it's just enough that it's interesting. And then when the extraordinary evidence justifies the claim, then you can consider the claim. But I th so I think there was a, they sort of stored up this problem for themselves, basically. So I agree with Sheila that it is how science works, but that should have happened about the measurement. The, the, the implications should not have been announced to the press. Um, but obviously, yeah headlines and that makes everyone happy in PR. yeah to, to be fair the, to be fair the actual scientific research team didn't ever suggest aliens uh, you know it, and it always has gone from these they were presenting their results and saying that phosphine is interesting because dot 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 and then it gets blown up into the life on venus kind of thing so it's um it's just one of those things it's like is is bad press just as good as bad, good press and you know what would you rather have nothing at all or so yeah yeah it's difficult well, There's I'm going to stop using my well. lingophone Venusian language course, uh, <laughs> which, frankly, was a bad idea based around Patrick Moore's work. Stuart, yes, sorry. I'm with all of this as as well, because what what um, uh, what Greaves et al. did, um, which, which is um, which is a perfect science work, I should say, is so it's absolutely. Hint of the of of, of the data from. Uh, 
from the James Clerk Maxwell telescope. They then used the ALMA telescope to get much more um, sort of accurate, precise data. And the, and, and the argument that seems to be happening right now is whether the ALMA data was calibrated correctly before it ever reached um, the Cardiff group and the collaborators who then did their analysis. So when the measurements are taken, you know, the, the data has to be cleaned, it has to be processed, it has to be what gets called reduced. And then it, at that point, it's ready for scientific analysis. And the work that I'm seeing is suggesting that there's there may have been um, an error in the calibration. And that if that's corrected, then the phosphine, uh, the, potent, the possible phosphine discovery goes away and this whole thing um, disappears. So it's all about measurement errors, really. All the way we went. Fingers signed up for that same course that you are, Robin. I'm practicing even you know as soon as we finish today. Well, well I, I recommend, recommend it every week. Go and find a second-hand copy of "Can You Speak Venusian" by Patrick Moore. It's a lovely book. Um, the uh, we had another slight trouble with the connection there with you, with you, Stuart. So I'm not sure whether Trent might make a decision to drop you out and then get you back again. I'm not sure what's going to go on. But just to to warn viewers, if Stuart, if, uh, um, Stuart does disappear briefly, he will be returning. We're just going to find out the best way of doing that. This is a question from Dominic, who's aged five. Um, I will uh, while you're still there, Stuart. I'm going to start with you. In fact, he wants to know when do a strong them asleep if they have to work only at night <laughs> that is such a good question we, we fit it in whenever we can and and we know for certain that the first um astronomer royal um flamsteed um he didn't observe all night he used to nip off to bed early because when Isaac Newton needed his data to help him perfect his theory of gravity, uh, when they finally wrestled the observations out of Flamsteed's hand, they found that um, there was a lack of the very data that Newton needed, which was the positions of the moon after full moon um, in its sort of third and fourth quarters. And um, those are the phases of the moon that you only see way after sort of um, midnight in the early hours of the morning. And Flamsteed didn't have very many of those observations. So we think he, he used to get tired and nip off the bed. Was Flamsteed the one that had the very elegant velvet pajamas? There was one of the astronomer roles from that, from that period, period that had very luxurious velvet for velvet pajamas for observing in and i can't remember which one it was that, that's um, all of us helen that's, that's what i thought that's, as well that's I de just... rigueur. <laughs> <laughs> and and edwin hubble um used to wear jodhpurs <laughs> when he was observed not to bed <laughs> but it's it, that's, that's me trying to exactly answering your question because i don't know who that was <laughs> Well, there's actually another. So modern astronomers modern actually astronomers do, actually do a lot of their work remotely, and so these days they don't get to go on the fun trips to Hawaii and Chile. They just um, tell the telescopes what to do. So they could be during their daytime now, and obviously Hawaii is on the opposite side of the planet, and so you can work a normal working day and be operating a telescope that runs at night. So um, although I'm not sure all of them are in I think they're sorry to lose the trips to Hawaii, but my visits to those places have been, you know, when they're observing, it used to be you went and you basically lived it, you lived, you know, at night, you didn't do anything else, you were kind of trapped in this thing. And I do remember seeing on the, one of the uh, telescopes on Mauna Kea, 
Mona Care, not Mona Loa, isn't it? Um, yeah. That the uh, the words to Hotel California, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never. You can. It was ho- Welcome to the Hotel Mona Care. That was it, and they'd rewritten it to this like trapped view of astronomy where they had to go into this place and they're on top of a mountain and they couldn't leave and it was like you can you know you can check out anytime you like but you can't actually go anywhere you've got to do your observing so so i i think that's gone away and now a lot more of it is um they can do from their offices in other time zones yeah you yes. just give again recommendations uh for people if they are after this um if you've not yet seen the documentary it came out quite a while ago now a few years ago called nostalgia for the light uh i don't know if if, if uh, either sheila or stuart have seen that which is all about uh the uh observatories in 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 the desert in in chile but it's also about the politics it's also about archaeology it is about how uh viewing the stars itself is archaeology because we're always looking back in time it is a very very beautiful film about many many uh, different things and very very humane so if you're looking for a science documentary to watch tonight nostalgia for the light is one to watch sheila yeah i was going to say when say when when i did some observing in australia we did just flip our day so we'd sleep in the daytime and we were awake over the nighttime hours and you do have a rotor so you're not always by yourself and you sort of share the time with with other people um but then when i was working on the cassini mission i wasn't doing um, visual astronomy I was working with um, piles of data and the satellite would just send us basically spreadsheets of numbers back and we could work on them you know we we use computer programs to work on them whenever we wanted so technology has changed the way astronomers work and many astronomers probably don't stay awake at night and look through a telescope at, at live data anymore which is kind of sad as well um Although I still do it for fun, obviously, um, but I just tried to do it at like 10 o'clock at night in the winter rather than two in the morning. So it's not so bad. One of the reasons Jocelyn Belbonnell discovered uh, pulsars was because she wanted to work with radio telescopes. She didn't want to be up all night. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, I mean, she will be joining us, by the way, on the uh, on the 12th of December, as I mentioned before. Uh, this one is uh, I'm going to ask you this, Stuart, because it, it's a wonderful bit of the history of astronomy. Marina would like to know, in our recorded history, have any visible stars from Earth died or vanished from view such that it would drastically affect celestial navigation if that was still our primary mode of navigation. She assumes the timescales are too short, but... Yeah, no, nothing has, has sort of disappeared or vanished like that. Um, in, in It's almost the inverse, actually, of what uh, she's um, suggesting, in that we've never seen bright stars that just sort of disappear. Um, but we have seen stars suddenly appear, which were fairly nearby supernova. So Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler, they both saw new stars, supernovae, appear in the night sky. And these were, su- um, um, nowadays, we have found those remnants, I should say, those supernova remnants. And we, you know, the, the Tycho supernova and the Kepler supernova remnant. Um, and at the time, they were, um, and they were explained as being in, in very astrological sort of um, terms that because the, the heavens were thought to be completely unchanging, perfect in construction. And so any change must mean something of very serious importance. And the whole holdover from the ancient civilizations that thought that the the universe around us was like a mirror of what we should be doing on the earth and we should somehow structure society in ways that mirrored things that were going on um, in the heavens. And so that sort of 
astrological, if you like, um, hangover was still really prevalent in the sort of 17th century when Kepler and um, Tycho were seeing these uh, supernovae. It's probably worth saying about celestial navigation, actually, that by its nature, because the sky is always going round, the when you when you when you do celestial navigation, you can use lots of different reference points. So you could lose one or two. It would be hard, a bit harder if you lost the North Star, the Pole Star. But apart most of the others, you could lose a few. And there are like you use planets and and the moon, and there are alternatives. So so no one well, will get. Helen, this could actually Gemma Nelson has a question where she was picking up on something that you talked about at the Albert Hall about years ago, and also from reading your book, Stuart, which she just started. And she was just interested in knowing of different methods of celestial navigation used by different civilizations uh, over the years that were developed completely independently, and whether there were wildly different methods to achieve the same results, or if it's just always been kind of versions of sextants and quadrants. There are definitely different methods. Um, so our version, so our version, the Western version, uh, which is associated with sextants and quadrants, is basically to say um, we know we we identify uh, one two points on Earth effectively, the point that's directly below a star and the an original point, and we're somewhere else at a third one, and we can use angles and triangulation. To, and time to work out where the point, our point of the triangle is. So that's our method. The Polynesians did it. Um, well, they had several a, a variety of methods, but they came down to looking at the horizon. Um, so looking at pairs of stars on the horizon, so that if you had a star pair that were this far apart, you you could wait until the distance between those two stars was same as the distance between them and the horizon, and you could use that as a reference point. So, but they they drew a sort of um, they call them now the modern incarnation of this because they don't have the old words. They call them star houses. So they've got words for uh, it's sort of like the faces of a clock. And there are houses and they describe where stars are rising and falling relative to the houses. But the thing that is different about Polynesian navigation, I, will, I won't talk about this for a long time, is that they we have the view where we are on a globe and we are move around the globe, whereas their view of the world, they have this principle of attack, which is that they see themselves as the centre and they see the horizon and the islands moving around them. And so they've got a different frame of reference. And so there are very famous maps. So um, Cook, Captain Cook found a navigator called Tupaya who could tell him exactly how to navigate across the seas. And, and Tupaya drew some maps. And then modern scientists looked at the Westerns, well, these are nonsense, that all the islands are in the wrong place. But then when you look at them with this framework, when which is that the navigator is at the centre and everything else is moving around you, they are absolutely correct. So a lot of the um, methods used were not appreciated because the framework was different. So yes, there are a lot, and the Vikings used, you know, there are there's some evidence they use polarization, things like that. Um, there's a lot of coastal navigation. Very few civilizations have navigated straight across open oceans. It's mostly the Polynesians. But yes, there were a lot of very a lot of methods. Right now, we've got six questions left. We've got five minutes. Let's see if we can do this. Stuart, I'm going to send the first one over to you. This is uh, a question about Pluto. Tommy G would like to know why did it stop being considered a planet? Does how, What does that tell us about the definition of a planet? The definition of a planet, I think, is really quite at the moment. Um, and any def so in trying to come up with a definition of a planet that seemed to be scientific and successful. Um, we sort of replaced what felt 
Oh, we've got a Lost drop it. out there. Stuart, we're going to come back to you. Don't worry. We're going to find out about Pluto. Uh, this is uh, right. Sheila, this is for you. Um, if you send you, someone to um, if you send someone to space, uh, for instance, on the ISS uh, with almost no training, what do you think the hardest thing would be? Oh, that's a really intriguing question. I'd love to go to the ISS. I wonder if it would be something like the 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 um, being able to cope with some, something called space sickness. So, um, and these sort of um, microgravity uh, or um, zero gravity environment. Because if you haven't had training in how to to physically deal with that, then that could be quite difficult. Um, and if you were surrounded by other people that were looking after you in terms of sort of food and water, then then um, maybe it would be the, the idea of the space sickness and, and being able to deal with microgravity. Stuart, back to Pluto. Yeah, back to back to Pluto. So um, it was removed from being a planet because it was simply thought to be too small um, to, to actually be a planet. Um, I think it still should be a planet. And I still think we and I think that we should include the large objects like Pluto out in its surroundings as planets as well. I see dwarf planets. We have our terrestrial planets, we have our gas giants. I see no problem in having icy dwarf planets, even if there's quite a lot of them, because I think that gives you um, a good sense of continuity about the way the solar system is structured and also how it formed. Could you just give us some idea when you, when you talk about quite a large number of them, roughly how many uh, are there? Oh, I, there would at least, there'd, be, there'd be dozens, and we don't know because we haven't found them all. But there would there would be at least dozens. Uh, right, we've had some some of the questions that have come I mean, in. Uh, uh, this is uh, what are Sheila and Stuart looking forward to with the uh, Psyche asteroid mission? Ta-da, finding out where this came from, um, because <laughs> Psyche um, is a metallic asteroid. So it's probably the, the, the large fragment of the core of one of these early planets in our solar system, a planetesimal as it gets called. And it's from places like Psyche that chips, um, like of my little iron meteorite may have come from. So this will be the first time we'll have seen an M type asteroid close up. And I think it could tell us an awful lot. Uh, Sheila, question for you, which I think you might just want to give a kind of website. To give a kind of website for this. Someone would like to know about the work that you did on Cassini, and rather than get you to do that in twenty-seven seconds, uh, <laughs> do you want to tell them where they can find out more about what you did with Cassini? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can read my PhD thesis. That is online. <laughs> um, you can just tweet me at Saturn Sheila if you've got any Cassini um, questions. I could talk about Cassini for about six days well, more than that probably i don't know where that value came from uh so yeah just tweet me any questions you've got about about cassini but that's that's how bad. i mean it could be 10 billion it could be 60 billion we know there's very often a kind of a, a broad in-between area and um, this is i've got a mammalian bioluminescence question so i feel that that should definitely be for you helen um warwick would like to know a new paper this week showing that platypuses have bioluminescent fur so What's this? Platypuses only get better, don't they? They're brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I did not know. Uh, I did not know that platys, platypuses have bioluminescent fur. It's possible. I wonder. I actually don't know. I wonder whether it's the things that grow on the fur rather than the fur itself. But um, I'm definitely going to. As soon as we finish this, I'm going to be looking for that paper. Um, but but platypuses. I mean, the reason it's interesting actually is that when they hunt, they, they close their eyes and they close their ears and they hunt using electrosensing. They kind of they've got this kind of flat beak and they kind of use it to sweep the floor. So basically, they're they're blind and deaf when they're actually hunting. So I I wonder whether bioluminescence is um, 
as you know it's a byproduct of something else rather than being a way for them to find food or or other platypuses but what a lovely idea that is fabulous i always find this is very similar to unitarians they're both very i love but it's the same the sloth or the platypus there's a kind of you know they're always vying for my love i feel um phil bine would like to know what is the next sky at night phenomena uh we have to look forward to now that neo wise has gone on its merry way so uh, sheila should we start with you i mean i just the I mean, I just the, the night sky in general uh, in the winter, it really I do enjoy. We've mentioned um, we've mentioned the planetary conjunctions um, and the full moon already. I don't know if there's anything else. There are meteor showers in the winter coming up. Um, but the, the comet thing, we just never know. We just never really know exactly which comets we're going to be able to see and which we're not when um, when they do get close enough. And uh, also, Stuart, uh, Venus is back in the morning sky now. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's such a jewel. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, up at six o'clock and have a good look for Venus in the uh, eastern sky. You know, just incredible. Now, yeah. we wouldn't normally uh, end on a dark matter question, uh, but then we'll come back next Sunday and one of you will still be answering it, I imagine. Uh, this is from Sean's story, and he would just like to know, any thoughts on the ratio of normal matter versus dark matter initially created in the Big Bang? There's a big closing question for you. But we start with you. I mean, so at the moment, so so, so 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 current thinking is that that is sort of around the one to five um, mark. Um, I am growing ever. I'm, I'm just going to say it, I'm growing ever more skeptical of dark matter. Um, and uh, so I'm yeah, I know like Sheila's just going to get him off the call now, right now. Um, but I find it fascinating. It, it's so well motivated. And yet it's proving so difficult to find. So there's a part of me that's always thinking, gosh, is it really there? Um, so, yeah, we'll, uh, I, I don't think we've had the right um, suggestion for what dark matter is at the moment, which is why we can't find it. Um, so I'm totally happy for someone to come along with it, you know, knock it out of the park with a suggestion for what dark matter is. But uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm sort of becoming quite sceptical of it. I'm not, I don't know enough to be as opinionated <laughs> as Stu, um, but in, in, in relation to that original question, I would imagine it would be 100% dark matter at the beginning of the universe bef before light and and other things were, were about. So I don't know if that's helpful at all or not. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for all your questions. Uh, go and find out about everyone who you've seen work. Said uh, Stuart's new book, uh, Beneath the Night, is, uh, is is fantastic. And you will be on. Uh, you're on Start the Week. Is it next week? You're on Start the Week. And uh, no, it's uh, in December, actually. December, right? So, so um, Stuart will be on. Uh, but do, it's it's a really interesting book. We were talking about this the other day. That, but um, Stuart's book and and Joe Marchant's book, they're really worth getting both of those books because they have a lot of crossover, but they have a lot of individual and, and interesting ideas about our relationship uh, with the night sky. Um, thank you very much, Helen. Happy birthday! Have uh, what are you off to do now for your special uh, birthday uh, treats? Well, crawl inside a whale and try and find I've some just form found of. Out uh, that platypus is a biofluorescent, not bioluminescent. So they they. They glow if you shine UV light at them, so it's not an evolutionary thing. And um, I am probably—I don't know—I'm I'm off to finish reading about the ambergris. Finish reading about the ambergris. That's what I'm about to do. Um, and also, Rita, UCL has just sent an email about their response to the new lockdown rules. So I'll be finding out about my working life for the next few weeks, months, 
something. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone, for watching. Remind you that you find out more about our 24-hour uh, science uh, variety show with, as I said before, Sophia Spector and Tanita Tikram and Helen Sharman and Chris Hadfield and Brian Cox and there's loads of Justin Belbonnell. It's an incredible lineup. I think we've announced the first 50 people. There's another kind of 59 that will get announced quite soon as well. Uh, go to our Cosmic Shambles site. And as well, as I said, if you can support us via Patreon, that is fantastic. And uh, yearly subscriptions we're doing with 15% off. And I'd also like to thank this uh, avocado, which has uh, fulfilled its use of balancing my microphone for the whole of this show. We'll be back next Sunday with uh, another show where we're doing basically part two of our mental health discussion. Please do send questions for that. Um, I hope the uh, rest of your weeks are as anxiety-free as possible and enjoy the night sky this evening. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.